Okay, we're going to be starting the book of Joshua. And before we speak of the man, what does his name mean? Let's start with that. His name was, original name was Hosea in the Hebrew, which means salvation. Uh, and actually, it's Hosea, it kind of comes out to Hosea in the English, which is actually one of the minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. But Moses later changed his name to Yehoshua, which really is a uh, combining of the words Yah for Yahweh, which was the, the, the tetragrammaton, the four consonant Hebrew name that God presented himself to Moses, yud heh vav right? And when you put vowels in there, it becomes Yahweh. So really, uh, God's name is, is, is yud heh vav which means it, it's a form of the word to be. God always was, God will always be. But we call him Yahweh, and some people say Jehovah. I think Yahweh is a little bit more accurate, though. So what it means is Yah would be the short informed of Yahweh, Yahoshua. So God is salvation. All right? Or Joshua. Now, see, it, what happens is when you go from the Hebrew to the English or the Greek to the English, the words, they, you know, they change a little bit. So we'll, we'll see how those words kind of fit in. But what is the significance of Yehoshua or Joshua, which is the same thing? Well, it means, the name actually means he is a type of Christ, a Joshua. Which, and what is a type? We've spoken about this before. It's a person or event that symbolizes a later person or event, a representation that comes out usually later in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus and Joshua are also synonymous it's the same name, but because it goes from Greek to English, it comes out as Jesus, and the Hebrew to English comes out as Joshua, okay? But the name is the same name, right? Both men, they, they mean the same thing, and again, it, it just comes out in that translation like that. But the book of Joshua is considered a historical book. It starts with the death of Moses and traces the uh, journey of the children of Israel into the promised land. And it's readily accepted that Joshua himself is the author. Joshua the man. Joshua is a general, he's a political leader, and he's a type of a savior, as we're going to see. Now, it doesn't mean that he is deity. Uh, let's not make that mistake. It just means that there's a symbolism here. We can see when we go into the book of Joshua, we can see Jesus written all over this. He's a prefiguring of the type of Christ, right? So Joshua, his background, he probably grew up a slave. Remember, the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, and then the Lord delivered them, and then they were wandered in the wilderness, and then eventually they went into the promised land. So Joshua probably grew up as a young man or a little boy as a slave in Egypt. Uh, he, as he grew older, he became one of the 12 spies. Remember the 12 spies? If you look on your map, I love maps. <laughs> Some of my... Uh, Bible study crew that were sat in on the Bible study years ago. I used to hand out all kinds of visual aids. But the maps, if you look at your map and you look at, go all the way down to the bottom of the page and a little bit to the left, you see I circled where it says Kadesh Barnea, uh, 12 spies. And that little dot was about where it was. It was the southern portion of the promised land, okay, from the wilderness of Zin, there's the wilderness of Paran. And then Kadesh Barnea was kind of the border where it would, you would go into the promised land. So what happened was there was 12 spies. Moses sent out one man 
to represent each tribe. So there was 12 tribes of Israel. 12 men went out. They went, uh, left Kadesh Barnea. They went into the promised land and they spied out the land. Now, what happened, if you remember the story, was uh, two of the people said, hey, the land is, is, is incredible. And well, they all said there's giants in the land and these really big people and, you know, pretty intimidating looking dudes. Right. But two of them said, but with God's help, we can do it. We can take them because God is on our side. Joshua was one of them and Caleb was the other one. So Joshua, you see, you see starting to come into the picture here. Um, and the only two that were allowed to enter the promised land was Joshua and Caleb because they had great faith in God. The other ones, God said to them, now you're not going to go into the promised land. You, you, you can't see it. Your whole generation, they're going to die in the wilderness. And your little ones, when they grow up, they can come into the promised land. But because of your unbelief and your lack of faith, you can't enter the promised land. kind of goes to show you how disbelief, not believing in God and his promises, is such an affront to God. So uh, that's something we can learn from that, that portion of Scripture. Okay, uh, Joshua was also Moses' assistant, and Joshua led the people into the promised land because Moses couldn't. Now, Moses couldn't get into the promised land not because of unbelief, but because of his, him misrepresenting God. On Sunday, we spoke about how the, there was the rock, and, and the children of Israel were thirsty. And the first time Moses was supposed to strike the rock, representing Christ, that rock was Christ. He was struck and smitten for our sins. And the second time the children of Israel needed water, you know, torrents of living water, you know, the everlasting life, that whole picture. Jesus said, you know, he's the, um, you know, the uh, everlasting, I'm sorry, the, um, he says the water that you'll, you'll, you won't thirst anymore, right? So the second time they was supposed to, Moses was supposed to speak to the rock and the rock would release water. But he was angry, Moses, and he struck the rock a second time. And for that, Moses couldn't enter the promised land. So you see Joshua, Caleb, and then all the young ones who grew up now after that 40 years are able to enter the promised land. Militarily, again, if you look at your map again, you see the, the dark arrows. If you look at the Dead Sea and follow the first arrow right above the Dead Sea where it says Gilgal and Jericho, once they crossed the promised land, Joshua uh, had a central campaign against the inhabitants there. Then he went south and then he went north. Okay, and you can see the one, two, three, four, and the events chronologically how he, uh, you know, how he uh, did his campaign there. So that's what, that's what Joshua did. He had a plan and he followed up that plan. But the interesting thing is he fought over 30 opposing armies. The biggest lesson learned here that Joshua learned was that the only way we're going to do it, the only way we can win these battles is if the Lord is with us. That was what he learned. And the phrase, be strong and be of good courage, is used several times alone in chapter 1. Hence the title on the CD, be strong and of good courage. So let's jump in. Verse 1. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. So this is the, the passing of the torch, so to speak. It's so neat. God spoke directly to Joshua, and he, he you know, the fact was, Moses is dead. My servant Moses is dead. 
Now he's passing the torch, so to speak. Here you go. It's yours. It's in your hands. This is what I want you to do. You're the next leader of the children of Israel. So, and that sometimes happens in our lives. There's a t- a, there comes a point in time where God passes the torch to us. Now, take it from me. When God passes the torch to you, you won't always be ready for it. And that's the beauty of it. You won't always be ready for it, but if you trust the Lord and go in his strength, you'll do very well, as in the case with Joshua. You know, we read a lot about these uh, great leaders, and we are so impressed by them. Like Joshua is such a great man here. But you know what? He's a human just like us. He probably, no doubt, had moments of weakness, moments of doubt. He probably wasn't sure if he could fill the shoes of Moses, right? And again, I don't know these things for a fact, but I'm just speculating. If he's a man like any of us human being with blood running through his veins like we do, the same concerns and the same uh, human emotions, he probably had these moments. But the Lord passed the torch to him, and he went, and he did it. And it's very interesting how the Lord grooms us over, the, over time. I remember with me, uh, years ago, when I maybe a few years after I got saved, I started reading the Bible a lot and learning a lot about the Bible, and I wanted to take it upon myself to start leading Bible studies. You know, I, I thought that, hey, you know, I know the Bible, Lord's giving me a gift, I'm going to go out and do it. And every time I tried to do it because it was about me, the Lord would hamper me. He would hamstring my efforts. And then when it came to the situation here, when it came back to me, I was like, I, was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know if I can do this. But the Lord was, was, uh, he was there for me, and he said, listen, this is what you're going to do, and I want you to do it. So it's a, t- a total reversal. In the one sense, I pushed for it, and he didn't let me have it. And in the other sense, I was like, well, I'm not so sure I can do this. And he said, now you're ready, <laughs> because you're not so sure. So God's not looking for people who are uh, you know, ego-driven, who are, think that they can do great things. God is looking for people who will humble, humble themselves and trust him. And two, if God calls you, answer the call. Don't argue, just do it. Everyone in this room, God has a plan for. Everyone in this room, God has a spiritual gift for. And even if you're, uh, the plan for you is to support your spouse, then that's still God's plan for you. I think about my wife. Uh, my wife is, <laughs> is like an Aaron in some ways, like I'm Moses and she's Aaron. You know, he's... In the secrecy of our home, she's a great supporter of me, and she you know, has a lot of wisdom that she provides, and she's really helped to, to support me. You know, and I also think of Anthony, you know, Pastor Anthony. He's another one that uh, he helps to raise my hands, like in that, that great battle when her and Aaron raised his hands so Joshua could you know, fight the battles there. And you need people like that in your life. Verse 3. It says, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. So here, our map doesn't show it so well, but you do see the, uh, the great sea, the Mediterranean Sea. You see Lebanon uh, it's, it's much further up. You see Tyre and Sidon towards the top of the page. Okay, that's uh, Lebanon or modern-day Lebanon. And then the, uh, you don't see the Euphrates, the Great River. It's not really clear here. And then it goes further south. So he gives the borders of the, you know, of the promised land. Now, interestingly enough, in Genesis 15, all this stuff was originally promised to 
uh, Abraham and his descendants, and now you see it coming to its fruition. Verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Now, some people believe there's a whole theological debate, God's promises in the Old Testament. Some people believe, well, yeah, you know, they apply to us. And some people believe, nah, he's specifically talking to the children of Israel. But I don't think there's a distinction here. I believe when God speaks to his people and says, I will never leave you, you know, I will not leave you nor forsake you, I will always be with you. I believe that we can claim those promises too. He loves us, he loved the children of Israel, he loves us, and we also have the down payment of the Holy Spirit. So there's proof right there that God won't leave us, because a part of him, the Holy Spirit, resides in us when we become believers. So that's, that's an awesome uh, encouragement that a lot of Christians have used. Also, Psalm 23, and often quoted the Psalm of the Divine Shepherd. And I, I quoted some of that on Sunday, but it's the same thing. Uh, you can take those promises and apply them to your own life. Verse 6, God says, Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded. You do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. So, it, again, this is very important. Never to be strong and courageous because of who we are. He doesn't say to us, hey, you know what, you got a lot of pretty good talents there. You're the type of guy that I could use. He doesn't do that. He says, be strong and courageous. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is and the promises that he has made. When it came to the destruction of Israel, when it came to uh, their downfall, he lifted them up, you know, the promises he made to them. And he said specifically to them, not because you deserved it, but because of who I am, because of the promises I made to you, I will fulfill them because of my nature. So be strong and courageous, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. We will be instruments of his divine plan, and that is when no weapon formed against us can prosper. Isaiah 54, 16 through 17. God made the blacksmith. God made the iron. God made the, all the materials to form those weapons. And if God doesn't want those weapons to, be, uh, to harm us, he will stop them from harming us. And then he says, um, don't, not, to sh not to turn to the right hand or to the left. In other words, don't make concessions with God's word and with, with your behavior. Okay? Don't deviate. You know, sometimes we're only a bad decision away from a slippery slope into our old lives, into a decadent lifestyle. There's people that you see who, you know, may be Christians for many years, and all of a sudden something happens, and you're like, what happened to them? And they end up totally walking away from the Lord, you know? Uh, don't turn from the right or to the left. If God has a path that's straight ahead, and he wants you to follow that path, you know, you just, once you start looking to the right or the left and you start desiring it, then you start falling off that path. And Jesus says in the New Testament that the path to righteousness, you know, the, the, the path to the kingdom of heaven is a very narrow road. It's very narrow. It's, it's a picture of a, you're, you're kind of on a narrow road and you're, you're at a precipice. And, you know, if, you, if you, your foot slips one way or the other, you're going to fall off, the, off that cliff. So that's the kind of picture that we should see. Jesus said very few people find that narrow path. Don't deviate. 
verse 8. He says, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, you, you, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So this is a qualification for verse 7. The answer to not falling back into sin is immersion. It's just to constantly be immersed in his word and his ways, to be baptized, so to speak, into the word. A brother spoke to me uh, a few days back about accountability. And the funny thing about accountability is you can't force somebody to be accountable. Accountability is a voluntary, a voluntary thing. You know, it's, you go to another brother or a sister goes to a sister and says, hold me accountable. But they can't hold you accountable unless you really want to be accountable. It's, it's a laying down of the will. It's a voluntary submission to have other people who are like-minded help to hold you up. And, uh, you know, James speaks about the, uh, he speaks about lifting someone up, uh, confess your trespasses to one another. That word is actually different from sin. It's actually different from transgression. In the Greek, the word trespass is, in, in, in essence, is you were supposed to maintain a spiritual walk, but you fell. And that's where to, to, to confess to each other, hey, hold me up. You know, we're supposed to hold and gird each other up. And that whole trespass thing is not confession like a confessional booth. And, you know, I, I tell Anthony my sins and he gives me absolution and I'm good for the day. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, hey, Anthony, I'm struggling in this area. I need you to help me. Hold me accountable. Hold me up. And that's what he's speaking about here, accountability. So, you know, it, it's true. Anyone can... Anyone can hide, anyone can pretend, anyone can play the Christian game or the Christian culture, and their whole life, you know, nobody sees it, but they're living a double life. So we have, to, we have to want to allow people to hold us accountable. And on the flip side, we should never look down our nose at other people's sins, because we're close. You know, that, that nature is still with us until the day the Lord comes back or we die. Uh, David said, you know, his psalms are great. He says, and again, David wrote the psalms, and they were different time periods, different lo- geographical locations, different points in his life, right? In the psalms, David says a few things. He says, my sins are ever-present with me. It's like they're always there, right? David says, my iniquities have overtaken me. The language that he uses in all these different scriptures, yeah, we look at David, oh, he made a mistake, but he was a, go- a man after God's own heart. But through David's life, he said, you know, it's this close to me. You know, I need to be uh, held up by the Lord. Verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What a promise, wherever you go. Now, uh, we can see this contextually in this passage, but we could also see this applied in our own lives. There's a command here. You know, if God is behind us, if God is with us, it's actually, and you ever realize this? If God is with us and he says, I'm going with you, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you, this is what I want you to do, don't worry about it, I'm going to hold you up. It's actually insulting to God if we go in fear and timidity. You know, that's, that's an affront to him. And, and I understand why he feels that way because he's saying, listen, you have to put your trust in me. Everything that you trust in now goes off of your own self and your own you know, finances, your own strength, your own, you know, education, whatever it is, the Lord says, and now take it off of you and put it on me. So it's an affront to him if we actually go now in timidity and fear because it shows that we don't trust God. 
You know, I think about uh, my life, and I have two jobs and incredible responsibility in that. And, you know, I get some issues with my, you know, my health. But you know what? When I lay my, he- my head down on the pillow, I fall right asleep because I know that God has me. You know, he has me in his hands. I don't really don't worry. I mean, I think a lot during the day. Art makes fun of me. He said the computers are always going. But when I put my head down on the pillow, I go to sleep. I don't stare at the ceiling wondering about this and about my job. And, you know, I don't do that. I just lay down and I relax and I go to sleep. It's because I know that God has a a calling in my life and God's presence is in my life, so I'm able to do that. Verse 10. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan, to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. It's amazing how much imagery is in this. Uh, I think right off the bat, in three days, Jesus led us into the promised land. Think about that. He was crucified, and none of us could be in the presence of God before that. You know, we, we couldn't stand face to face with God. The Bible said no one can see God face to face and live, right? We couldn't, people couldn't see the full effect of God's glory. Moses got a glimpse of it. So did Elijah. So did many people in the scripture. But until Jesus was crucified and, and the sins of the world were laid on him, our sins, you know, and, and he took that with him, right? We couldn't have, we couldn't be in the full presence of God. So, you know, he talks about in three days, but in three days, Jesus led us into the promised land. Our sins have been forgiven. Isn't that an awesome uh, picture there? So, And we're also going to see the miraculous stopping of the Jordan and how they couldn't have crossed without God stopping the waters of the Jordan. Verse 12. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua spoke, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. But you shall pass before your brethren brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor, and help them, until the Lord has given your brethren rest, and he has given you, and they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses the Lord's servant gave you on this side of the Jordan towards the sunrise. So this is actually a situation where uh, these guys, Gad, uh, half-tribe of Manasseh, and the Reubenites, three, two and a half tribes of Israel, decided to stay. Again, look at your map. You see the Jordan, right? You see Gilgal and Jericho right above the Dead Sea. And what happens is, uh, before they're going to go into the Promised Land, to go left over the Jordan, what you see is uh, these two and a half tribes stay on the east side of the Jordan. But what they do is they send their fighters in with the rest of the tribes of Israel. Now, that was a situation that happened in uh, Numbers 32. These two and a half tribes said, you know what? We like this land over to the east side. It's grazing country. We've got cattle. And we, um, you know, we're, we're kind of digging this area east of the Jordan. We really don't want to go into the promised land, but... We don't want to get God upset either. So what we're going to do is we're going to send our fighting men, you know, thousands of fighting men over with you. We're going to keep 
our women and our children and our, our flock and some of the younger men over the east side to build cities and, you know, to start a life there. But we're also going to help you fight the inhabitants of the people in the promised land. And we're going to kind of hang out here. We like it here. So what, what what's, they're being reminded is, remember the promise that you made to Moses, because this was something that a deal they struck with Moses. And uh, you, you have to send these people over. Do you remember the promise? And these three tribes said, yes, we remember, and we're going to send them over with you. Okay? So that's what's going on here. <laughs> now, the picture here is, what's amazing is, God wants the best for us. He said, this is a land, the promised land. It's, it's flowing with milk and honey. You saw the spies bring back these huge clusters of grape. Grapes. So this is a picture of a fertile land. Whatever you could possibly want, it's in the promised land. But these two and a half tribes say, eh, but we're okay with this. You know, I know the promised land is probably neat, and maybe our cows might like that grass too, but we're going to kind of stay over here in the east side. We don't really want to cross over. This is a picture of Christians who fall short of what God has for them. God says to Christians, look, I have abundant life for you. Jesus says, I have come that they have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And this is a picture of Christians who say, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of happy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to settle. I'm going to satisfy with this. I'm going to satisfy with maybe, you know, salvation and a little bit of work in my hands. And I'm just, I'm not buying the whole thing. I'm just not going to, maybe I'm afraid. Maybe something's holding me back. And that's what this is kind of a picture of. Um, you could think of a lot of things, people who have Christians who have a career path. I, I think of uh, Lloyd spoke about this a lot. Lloyd Pulley, he uh, was going to be a chemical engineer and he was his heart was set on it. You know, he was either going to be in the Olympics wrestling team, uh, but he's going to go to college and be a chemical engineer and do that. He had all these plans, but the Lord had other plans for him. And now look at all the churches actually who st that started from the fruit of Lloyd's obedience. You know, Old Bridge has 5,000 people. And look at all the churches throughout New Jersey that actually were an outgrowth of the obedience of, of Lloyd Pulley. So a career path can actually hold you back. Uh, somebody, somebody was saying recently that Gail Irwin had the uh, opportunity to go to med school. And he turned it down because the Lord had called him into ministry and they thought he was nuts, right? So a career path can hold you back. Uh, relationships, you see it all the time. People have relationship issues where they're just not, it's just not a good thing. And it holds back Christians from being all they can be in the Lord. So there's just, we can go on, on and on and on about how people never get to the promised land because they let things hold them back. It's all about choices in life. Verse 16. And they answered Joshua saying, all that you command us we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded, we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God will be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words, in all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. Now, James 3.1 speaks to us as, as leaders in the church. It says that, don't you know, don't, don't, doesn't it, don't everybody want to try to become a teacher or, or a you know, leader in the church? Because don't you realize we will receive a stricter judgment? So God holds people in leadership more accountable than a person who just comes in and listens to the word. And again, it's all about representing God. It's not that people in leadership are better, but it's about representing God. If you're going to represent God, it's got to be right. You know, it's got to be in all facets of your life. But 
On, on the flip side, let's talk about the responsibility to support a leader. This is a great scripture because these people are saying, okay, Moses is dead. God has called you. We're going to follow you, and we will support you. Now, I'm not going to go as far as asking anybody here to put to death anybody that rebels against me. I think that might be a little bit extreme. But suffice to say, I'm encouraged to know that I have your support. People in leadership have to have that encouragement to know that we have the support of, of the people. Um, remember, God spoke to Joshua in clear and precise way. We as leaders have the Holy Spirit, but sometimes we have trouble deciphering the Holy Spirit from our own thoughts. And, you know, we have to be in prayer. We have to be in the Word of God. And people have to be praying for us to make good, wise decisions. Uh, so, you know, it kind of brings me to the summary here that this chapter is bittersweet in that they lost their faithful leader, Moses, and they have to good, get used to Joshua because he's going to take them into the promised land. And also, as God is going to use Joshua, Joshua is not going to go without making mistakes. He's going to make mistakes. He's a new leader. He was an apprentice under Moses, right? He's got God's leadership, but he's going to make mistakes. And the people have to realize that as they go through these trials with him. And I can, you know, I can liken some of that to, to our church today. Uh, you know, I'm going to be painfully honest here. When, when we had a change of leadership, some people got afraid. They were like, well, what's going to happen here? And people took off. You know, they were faint-hearted. And this, this, this kind of thing, starting a new church and uh, starting a new leadership, it's not for the faint-hearted. Remember with Gideon, he had 32,000 fighting men, so he thought. And he asked them, if anyone's afraid, if anyone's, you know, really nervous about this or, you know, you're cowardly, you can leave. And several thousand of them left, and they took off. And that was a good thing. And it's a good thing here, too, because I need to know who is here, who is going to take up that spiritual sword and shield and say, we're going to fight spiritual. You know, we're going to be with you. We're going to cover you in prayer. We're going to be with you when it comes to going out and, you know, witnessing to people and being a good example to people. And, and that's great. You know, when we have to go conquer the spiritual Canaanites. I need to know what warriors are that stand with me. And two is, um, you know, again, support the leader that God puts before you. God used Pete, and God's used me, and I don't know how long, how much time I have. If something happens to me, you're going to have to support Anthony. So <laughs> he's like, he's like, no way. He's praying for me to be safe. But you know, God will change. You know, things are for a season. God changes things, and He puts people in His positions, and the people have to say, well, if that's God's choice, I'm going to support you. So there's a lot of parallels here. So I, I just want to say, as we go through the book of Joshua. There's amazing parallels. There's, the more we go through the New Testament and the Gospel of Luke and we go back into the Old Testament, things are going to click. The light bulbs are going to go off. The parallels are amazing. And, you know, we have the scripture here and we can just flip pages. But just realize how many thousands of years separate the New Testament from a lot of the Old Testament. And they, they intertwine, they jive. So as we go through the book of Joshua, I just want you to pray for parallels in your own life. And look at what the Lord is saying to you through the book of Joshua and uh, see what he's trying to show you. So let's close in prayer. Through the book of Joshua.